I'm excited to, uh, to be here. You got a great pastor. You got a great staff. I hope that you know that for those online. I know, uh, I know uh, folks can't wait to see you either. So it's, um, it's just good to, uh, to be here. I'm going to read, read a story that I think we're all familiar with. Uh, but, but I want you to listen as if you're listening to it for the first time, all right? It says, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, let me pray for us, okay? Father, thanks uh, for the gift of today. And uh, God, I just pray. I pray that we we open our... um, eyes to maybe some things uh, unseen, that we open our ears to uh, some things that maybe we've heard before, but I pray that um, we would make ourselves in the next few moments just unfamiliar to the story as of hearing it for the first time. And so, Lord, uh, what you want to do today, may your will be done in this place as it is in heaven. And so, God, we pray these things. Amen. Well, you may be uh, familiar with the, uh, the movie, uh, the 2001 or the 2000 film, The Perfect Storm, all right? It's probably being shown 19 times this month on TNT if you still have cable, but um, uh, it depicts the 1991 weather anomaly that converged roughly 500 miles off the coast of Massachusetts. It consisted of a low-pressure system off the southeastern coast of Nova Scotia. It mixes with a high-pressure system that was sweeping up through the northeastern coast of the U.S. And then, as if throwing gasoline on a fire, Hurricane Grace comes in from the Atlantic, causing the perfect storm to converge on the commercial fishing vessel, the Andrea Gray, or the Andrea Gale, 500 miles off the coast of Massachusetts, sadly leaving the commercial vessel to nothing more than matchwood. 2020 felt like a perfect storm. We had the high-pressure system of COVID-19 that hit the entire world. We had a low-pressure system in our nation of the political polarization that, uh, that had been slowly building over the last decade. Then you throw in the hurricane of racial unrest that has been there since the beginning of our nation. This created the 2020 perfect storm to converge. It's safe to say that we live in a very anxious 
society. Anxiety is the most common mental disorder in the U.S., affecting 40 million adults. 19 million adults experience specific phobias, making it the most common anxiety disorder in America. 6.8 million adults have generalized anxiety. 6 million adults have panic disorders. According to the National Institutes of Health, nearly one in three of all adolescents ages 13 to 18 will experience an anxiety disorder, not to mention suicide is at an all-time high. Well, Jewish rabbi and family therapist Edwin Friedman coined the phrase becoming a non-anxious presence in an anxious society. This provides a calm, cool, and collected environment that empowers others to relax. Notice Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, as this non-anxious presence in a boat marked with anxiety and fear. You see, as we read this story in the Gospel of Mark, rousing a sleeping prophet to secure one's prayers may have reminded the disciples or first hearers of the story of Jonah. But Jesus is quite different from Jonah, as one commentator notes. Jonah is in the midst of a storm, and he's running away from the presence of God, and Jesus is inviting his followers into the presence of God in the midst of a storm. And you need to know something. There are four very experienced fishermen in the boat. You have Simon and his brother Andrew, Then you have the sons of Zebedee, James and his brother John. Not bad odds when you consider four out of the 12 disciples have certainly experienced this kind of thing before. I remember running into two fishermen in Kasumu, Kenya. That's kind of my Guatemala, if you will, for your church, like uh, Kenya is home away from home. And I remember being on this, this coastal city on Lake Victoria. Lake Victoria is huge, and they had traveled more than 200 miles in a boat that didn't look terribly different than a first century boat that Jesus himself would have traveled in. So two guys travel more than 200 miles. They've got four experienced fishermen, and you need to know something. The Sea of Galilee is only about eight to 10 miles across. I've been on the Sea of Galilee several times. Due to its lie-lowing position in the Rift Valley and the surrounding hills, the sea can get sudden, violent storms. Waves have been recorded up to 10 feet high. It is not unusual that when you leave one side and you're making your way to the next, you will be in the middle of blue skies, and then the captain says, we got to go. And that's what happened to us. The storm was coming, and it just comes that quick. Now, what do we know about the sea throughout the scriptures? Well, the sea represented chaos. The Bible starts with water, the spirit hovering over the face of the water, and ends with with water, the river of life giving life to all the new creation. But Revelation says the sea will be no more in the new heavens, new earth. You see, the sea represented the chaos God, and God will deal the God of chaos its final blow. The first readers would be very aware of the chaos gods seen throughout pagan literature of their time. Most Jewish listeners believed that angels controlled the forces of nature, but the angels did have one to whom they must answer. 
In Jewish tradition, the one who ruled the winds and sea was God himself. Psalm 65, 6 through 7, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the ways, the tumult of the peoples. Psalm 89, 9 through 10, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Now Rahab represented this raging sea monster. Psalm 93, verse 4, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Psalm 107, 29, he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Notice rather than the chaos being outside the boat, it is inside the boat and particularly inside the fear of the disciples. If we're to be painfully honest, we are not terribly different than the disciples. Let me ask you, what do you fear? Fear the unknown, unpredictable? Fear the future for your children? Maybe some of you have a fear of water. Maybe it's heights or public speaking. You can't imagine yourself on a stage like this. I know I couldn't uh, throughout high school. It was the very reason why I didn't want to go into ministry because I didn't want to preach. <laughs> I just like to make people laugh, to be honest with you. So... Maybe it's the fear of another kidney stone, or that's just me, all right? Uh, maybe it's the fear of missing out, or it's the fear of loss of a loved one. Maybe it's the fear of a wrong job, wrong spouse, or wrong house. Maybe it's the fear of unemployment. Maybe it's the fear of a new normal post-COVID. Maybe it's the fear of things going back to the way they were before COVID. Maybe it's the fear of my political party not being in office. Maybe it's the fear of not being able to trust anyone. Maybe it's the fear of even leaving my home or the fear of others not like us or the fear I am losing faith. You see, we have to name our fears. We have to locate Jesus and then locate our fears. Where is Jesus in the midst of our fears. You see, the first thing to go during moments of anxiety or fear is what? Sleep. Reese, my daughter, my eight-year-old daughter, I've got three kiddos, 11, 8, and 5, and my daughter is scared to death of storms. Every night, it could be blue skies, you know, all day long. Daddy, have you checked the weather channel yet? Is there going to be a storm tonight? All right? That was my question. That was the question to me last night. Dad, are you positive there's not going to be a storm tonight? Now, here's the thing. My daughter's heart will get racing. I will go into her room when she is scared to death of the storm because she heard the thunder outside. And we know if we hear thunder in the middle of the night, before too long, Reese will be at our bedside, and I just hope, I just hope my reflex just doesn't go out because sometimes you see a child with the hair in their face and they're just standing in the dark. <laughs> you may knock somebody out. <laughs> and so instead, it was my five-year-old last night waking me up. But, um, but it's in that moment that I pray this prayer with my daughter. I say, Jesus is always for you. 
He's always with you. He's never against you, baby. Now, that sounds super spiritual. Many times my daughter will look at me and says, Dad, just get into bed with me. Because the reality of it is when we're in that moment of fear or high anxiety, I need Jesus with skin on. And I ain't trying to claim that I'm Jesus. What I am trying to say, there is something about somebody jumping in the boat with us. You see, that's what this story does. It invites us into the story. The Dutch artist Rembrandt is considered one of the greatest visual artists throughout history. This is Rembrandt's 1630 painting of Jesus calming the storm. Now listen to what one artist commentator writes about the painting. Jesus and his disciples are in the boat. Some of them are in a state of panic. Some of them are working to hold the boat together. One is leaning over the side of the boat about to vomit. One of them is staring out directly at us, holding onto his cap with one hand and onto a rope with the other. I'm not sure which disciple this is, but it's Rembrandt's face. With careful observation, we can make out in the midst of all this tumult, Jesus himself waking up from his nap and not the least bit worried. O ye of little faith. He goes on to write, the brushstrokes here are wild, broad, windswept splashes across the canvas. We can actually see, almost touch, the vigorous brushing. It takes work to make out the small human faces. The both. The boat has been swept up to an almost 45-degree angle to the water. As we watch, we ourselves are thrown off balance. You see, there is a reason why this specific Rembrandt painting was stolen in 1990 from a Boston museum and has never been found to this day. It pulls us in so much that some person somewhere wanted to take it with them, refusing to let it go. I love this phrase. Mark points out in verse 36, they took Jesus with them just as he was. As one author says, the great psychic enslavement of fear recedes when confronted with Jesus as he is. Notice the three questions Mark invites his readers to answer. Number one, do you care? Number two, who is this? And number three, from Jesus, why are you so afraid? Number one, does he care? These are all questions we identify with. That first question the disciples ask one another is a question we have all asked at some point. We want to know if he even cares. It is deeply personal. Does he care about my situation? Does he care about my circumstance? Does he even begin to know or even see what it is that I'm walking through? Where is he? Does he care my marriage is falling apart? Does he care about my infertility? Does he care about my job loss? Does he care about my loneliness? Where was he when I had to bury someone too soon? Does he care about my depression? Does he see my abuse? Where was he when I was a kid, when I was walking through all this stuff or when this stuff was happening to me? Does he still care for me despite my addiction? You locate Jesus. 
You find him in the boat next to you. Is he asleep because he doesn't care? Or is he asleep because he trusts God is with him and with his disciples, including you and I? Jesus, in his humanity, was so confident of God's presence and power that he can fall asleep on a pillow. Are you? What are we losing sleep over? Do we trust him? See, the second question, who is this? This next question is crucial for our formation. This is the central question to Mark's gospel. Jesus will ask the same questions to his disciples just moments later in the very center of Mark's gospel in Mark 8, 29. Who do the people say that I am? With this question, we are essentially asking ourselves, can I trust him? Can I trust his power and authority in my life? When the storm hits, will he be there? Another author says trust escalates not because God has offered proof, but because God has shown his face. Jesus puts a face on God. You may recall a few lines from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Jesus in John 10 will refer to himself as the good shepherd who knows his sheep. We tend to question if the one who leads us beside still waters is not also the one who is with us in the valley of the shadow of death. I was walking with my son uh, down to the lake uh, a few weeks ago, and we walked by this natural uh, drainage uh, ditch that runs down the hill. And so it's this slight valley there in the ground. And, and of course, it was dry at the time. It had not been raining. And so my son looked at me, my five-year-old Rowan, he looks at me and he says, Dad, have we played in that creek before? That's kind of a normal thing for us. And I said, no, we haven't played in that one before. We played in a different one. Here's the interesting thing about that. As soon as it rains, what's the first thing to fill? It's that drainage ditch. And that water is running, and that water runs all the way down into the cove that is very still and calm water. And some of us, some of us, during times like this, we feel like we're in this valley. And the very thing that fills that valley is this living water. And so right now, what may feel dry, what may feel to be a season of doubt, may soon be filled with a much deeper faith. Jesus' own brother, Jude, will write, be merciful to those who doubt. We've got to create safe space where the Thomases can come into the church, be welcomed into the church, because the Thomases are the ones that are asking questions that we all need to consider. And oftentimes when we're in this season and it feels like we're all alone, he's like, I promise you, I am with you, just wait. The storm will pass, and I will lead you to calm waters. Now, you need to know something. He never promises that there won't be a storm. If you haven't faced a storm yet, I'm sad to tell you that you will face a storm soon. 
that you got to trust the one who is with you. You see, in many ways, we have let Jesus simply become a symbol, robbing him of his humanity. In fact, we wear the symbol around our neck, ignoring what the symbol really represents. Not only is he the good shepherd, but he himself is the one who walked through the valley of the shadow of death, facing what we may fear the most, and he came out the other side. He is Psalm 23. This is why it's vital for Mark and his readers to see Jesus just as he is. This is why the doctrine of the humanity and deity of Christ is vital to our faith. I grew up, I grew up only hearing about the divine Jesus. I never got to hear about the human Jesus. I never got to hear about the Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that faced tremendous stress and anxiety, that we can say faced fear said that he was sweating drops of blood. I didn't get to hear much about that Jesus. But the doctrine of the humanity, that he's fully human, fully divine, he is one that we can identify with because there's nothing that we will go through that he himself hasn't went through. He's not just a spectator. You see, he, the resurrected Christ holds the keys to what we fear the most. And when we celebrate Jesus as merely a symbol, we rob him of his humanity. N.T. Wright says, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what grief is, look at Jesus. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but you're actually part of the drama which has him as the central character. Number three, the third and final question is from Jesus himself. Why are you so afraid? Faith is not contingent on size but on the very object of our faith, particularly during a storm in life. The Bible tells us to have the faith of a mustard seed. Mustard seeds are small, small faith, big God. But where does our focus go during a storm? Where do we fix our attention? The question is, do we see him as he is? There's another painter, Eugene de la Croix, in 1853, painted Jesus calming the storm. He actually painted six different versions of this painting. Notice what he does with the story. He puts Jesus in the middle sleeping. But he has the disciple lying right next to Jesus sound asleep as well. Remember what I said earlier, the first thing to go during moments of fear and anxiety is sleep. Psalm 127 tells us he gives to his beloved sleep. You see, where is my attention drawn in both paintings? I've shared before about the scariest moment of our lives was our firstborn son and almost losing our son. He was born nine weeks early, weighed three pounds. Everything that could have went wrong went wrong. His lungs kept collapsing. He was on so much medication that they were worried about constant concern about a brain bleed. And so out of Long, long story short, we ended up bringing our son home out of the hospital, but one of the first people that we had to see was an occupational therapist. 
And this occupational therapist sat down with our infant uh, boy that was just now kind of the, the age of a normal infant, which is wild to think that he had reached that, you know, that, that 38, 39, 40-week mark at that time. And so we're sitting and watching him, and he's on his back, and he takes this object, and he puts it straight over his face. And he wanted to see if my son would fix his attention on that object and go back and forth. He was trying to see maybe what damage had been done and what they needed to work on and what the therapy would look like moving forward. And I watched my little infant child who I had prayed like crazy that we would bring him home. But I watched my infant child fix his attention on that object not thinking about anything else in the room, including us. And I feel like, I feel like God does that same thing with us. Is would you just look into my eyes? And more importantly, for some of us, we need to see his eyes looking back at us. You see, the disciple in the painting chooses presence over panic. And I believe this is the invitation of Jesus for us today. He too sleeps in peace in the midst of panic. Jesus is asking his disciples and he's asking you and I, do you trust me? Listen, there will be storms, but I promise you the storm will end. They asked Dallas Willard, this spiritual sage, if he could describe Jesus in one word and what would he say? And he thought for a moment, And then he responded with the word, relaxed. Relaxed. You see, I just want to end with two invitations that I believe Jesus offers us today. Number one, Jesus invites us that you don't have to face your fears alone. I've read this story a thousand times. I've taught this story a ton, but I never noticed verse 36 tells us that Jesus went just as he was and other boats were with him. This is really vital for those online, for those that are here in person. We need to join a community of faith that we call the church. It's why I believe in-person really does matter. It's not to be condescending to those that are online. There may be perfect reasons for being at home. I get it, I get it. But there is something about being in person with one another, having someone in the boat with us. More importantly, have a group of people that are like Jesus with skin on. It were those people, the groups of people, our community group that was in the hospital room when our son was fighting for his life. It was a game changer. It were the groups of people that traveled an hour and a half south at my mother's funeral that died suddenly. It was a group of people that had been with me the last 10 months, the hardest 10 months of ministry of my life, where I have actually woken up on days and said, I don't want to do this anymore. And that's just being really candid, facing some stuff that I did not deal with as a kid, that all of a sudden they decide to surface and having people around me like Blake and Tony and Susan and folks, my wife, Sarah, around me during the most difficult 10 months of my life that are just saying, come on, come on, we're with you. 
It's vital. You don't have to face your fears alone. And you see, we also become a non-anxious presence in an anxious community. Can you imagine when people look at Journey Church and they see there's something different? They're not anxious. There's something going on. There's something that's bigger than themselves. I want to be a part of that. I feel actually less anxious when I'm with them. Second thing is this, the last and final invitation is you make this your story. This is what the gospels do for us. This is what Mark is inviting us into. Do not be surprised that Jesus is not the one who has fallen asleep that we have. He has always been there waiting to wake up a faith centered on him and who he is. Do not be surprised that when he wakes up this sleeping giant, that the storm begins to subside in the background. So may I ask you, why are you so afraid? He desires to be that non-anxious presence in your life. Let me pray for 